0: And we've reached the end of the road for our celebration of achieving 1000 podcasts here on this little Marshall Pruitt audio experiment brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Got that part one in, finished that part two. Here we are, shutting it down, turning off the motor, throwing away the pistons. We're done. This is part three, and for good measure... We wanted to go out in style, so we're introducing a couple of new voices just to say farewell. Our man, William Theodore Ribs, better known as Willie T. He joins in good pal, actually someone who makes this show possible, Ed Justice. He tells a tale that tickles my Californian heart. And we close with one of my all-time favorite stories, Told by the pure delight that is harley cluxton saved i don't want to say the best but one of my favorites for last it's a long one it is oh boy (laughs) uncle harley gotta love the man so here we go gonna say thank you to all of you who made 1000 podcasts possible hope you've enjoyed parts 1 and 2 and off we go with our dear pals to say farewell to 1000 and I guess officially embark upon 2000 here on the Marshall Pruitt podcast remember that part where I mentioned Wayne Taylor was an angry angry young man well it didn't necessarily subside as he became a slightly older man. If Wayne's last yarn on a road race and going kind of, sort of psycho on a driver there and a regional series wasn't enough. Well, here's a tale from the 1991 IMSA GTP season and their visit to the lime rock circuit where our man did indeed hit everything, but the pace car. Do you know, the, the, the funniest
1: thing, that, and I don't know all of this, but Bill Riley always says to me,
0: you know, I just wish
1: your kids were around and knew what you like when you first came here and started racing. I said, well, what's the difference? He says, man, it was so cool those days with you. You used to just take anybody out. You didn't care who it was. You know, you just crash into everybody. And I said, you think that was great, Bill? He goes, oh, I loved it. I loved it. And of course, you know, the, the big story that really, the story of my life really that was the worst ever was um, Lime Rock, 91, Chevrolet Intrepid, me and Tommy. And, you know, he had a big group of the mechanics who were all Tommy Kendall fans, not Wayne Taylor fans. And so, you know, I felt like I had the car for the first race and finished second, um, the first race, and then he got the car. And so then we were racing together and we got to Lime Rock. And the car generated so much G-force that you could go through Big Bend flat out. They had to make um, belts to go under our legs and strap them to the dashboard to stop our legs falling over so that we could keep our foot in the throttle. So it was time to qualify. And Tommy went out and he got the pole. Brabham went out. All of them went out. There was time for me to go out. And as I left the pit lane, the clutch exploded. So I didn't get uh, qualified in the back row of the grid. So Tommy saw in the pole. There were all the... Um, gtp cars and then there was also the camelite cars parker johnson had been winning everything and stuff and so the gm racing people pull me into a into their motorhome thing and they go look under no circumstances can you take any risk in this race and you know you're at the back and if tommy comes you've got to let him by and we can't have you two collecting each other so it's fine race started Obviously I was at the back, the analyst camera lights. So Tommy was coming up to, to, um, to lap me, but he wasn't leading. It was Jeff Bradham, I think was leading and Chip Robinson was second. And Tommy was third. I believe we come down the straight. They said, Tommy's coming. And, um, I said, okay. And I pulled to the left and let Tommy go. But then I, you know, got tucked back in behind him again, because that's what you would do and going through big bend. Suddenly, he hits the brakes with his left foot, and I just ram him in the rear so f***ing <laughs> hard that the f***ing battery jumps out of the car. I mean, it was a disaster. I then keep going, and I'm now leading the race, and I was so worried about the trouble I was going to be in that I then get up and I'm behind Parker Johnson, and I'm not thinking, and I hit him, and he flies upside down, and I'm looking at him upside down, and he's literally hanging upside down looking at me. And then I don't know why I just drove through the pit lane for whatever reason. I don't know. You'd lost and your mind. Yeah, you know, then I go back out, and I cannot remember who was driving for Toyota, but I punted him off as well. <laughs> and, and it was like the cluster of all cluster. Of You know, I just, it was unbelievable. I tell you, the drama that I had from Tommy and his mechanics and the GM, I mean, it stayed with me. And I still, I still think, I still think um, they feel the same today. But the point of the whole exercise was, why would you have left break? So what I did was I went to, to Chip and Jeff, who I respected very highly. And I go, what the hell did you guys do? I rammed into Tommy. And they go, yeah, we just we just break checked him, and I said, oh, great, because then he, I thought he was break checking me, and I take him out. So they can blame me all they like, but I, you know, I don't really care. They, um, <laughs> I don't know why he would have done something like that. But
0: in typical Willie T. Rib style, he saved the unmentionables until after he had confirmed we were done recording. Nonetheless, this tale about 1987 the year where he won the driver's championship, but more importantly, the manufacturer's championship for Toyota in IMSA's GTO class wielding an all-American racer's Toyota Celica, four-cylinder turbo, 500 horsepower. It's the final race where Willie T put in one of the most remarkable drives of his life. And how do we know this? Well, the in-car video stood the test of time. One of the finest creations ever done in terms of in-car footage. But that's only part of the tale. Willie T, definitely known as a man who can enjoy a night out. And the Big Eagle, also known for his partying ways. Well, we get one of those stories from Willie T, and then we get a little bit of a heat check and learn that there might be some folks who they didn't suspect could take the party to a higher level, but indeed embarrassed their American hosts. Probably the best of
2: 1987 when I was racing for the. Dan, Dan, the legend Gurney. And, you know, we had, um, you know, we were competing against Ford uh, and Chevrolet and, you know, and the manufacturers championship, you know, was, was a big deal. I mean, they, it was treated the same way. The manufacturers championship was treated in uh, formula one, nothing on that level, but the same, same mentality. And, um, you know, we, we were doing well that year. We won some races. And we were right in it, right till Del Mar, which was the last gig in the IMSA GTO season. And Dan was is nervous. And so I you know, I was telling Dan, you know, we were in the trailer and we were going through debriefing for the race and, you know, we were figuring out where we gotta be to win the win the manufacturer championship. Okay. And Willie T, you you know, you're gonna go out and you're gonna be the rabbit just cord, you back him up. And so that's how we um, approach it but Dan was just like irritable you know i mean he was testy and, you know cuz there was it whoever if ford won the race they won the championship if if we won the race cuz it was really between us and ford Toyota would win it the very first corner i touched um, I think I touched tires with my teammate Chris Cord as we were going in the first corner when the green flag dropped. You know, it was a slight bump, but the bump was uh, uh, hard enough, just in the right place where it knocked the stem off the valve stem. And so like we got close to halfway around, and I got on the radio. And I said, "I think I got a flat tire." I said, "It, uh, it ain't turned and left very well." I went in, and uh, we, you know, and I had to crawl in. I couldn't come in. Uh, I couldn't charge in, so I had to crawl in and. Uh, you know, they changed the right front and I went out and I knew I had to go hard, but I was trying to determine how hard in case we got a caution. And that's what I was praying for that we, I get a caution and we could tighten things back up and then it would make it easier to get to the lead. Well, we never got a caution. So I just, I hammered it every corner, every lap for the, for the remainder of the race. And, uh, uh, it was, it was fun. It was fun to do because you learn when you put yourself under that kind of pressure for the lack of a better word or intensity, you learn a lot about yourself. So, um, that was, that was, and, and I forgot that I had an in-car camera. And then when I actually saw after the race later, the in-car camera, I thought, damn, I was working hard. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't realize I was working that hard until I saw
0: it. And what about the feedback on that video specifically from Del Mar? Because it has, uh, it's become a legend. And I don't just mean IMSA legend. I mean, you talk about famous in-car racing footage and your drive that year, that car,
2: that challenge coming back from the flat tire I mean it it's among the all-time greats. The most complimentary comment I got from that in car was from Bobby Unser. Really? Oh yeah, Uncle Bob. And this was a long time ago, you know, when he when he uh made when he told me what he thought about it. He says, "You remind me of myself at Pikes Peak." Oh, Jesus. Right?
3: <laughs>
2: you, remind, you you remind me you remind me of Bobby Unser at Pikes Peak. <laughs> And I just, (laughs) I just thought that was the greatest compliment in the world, you know, I mean, uh, because I've seen his Pike's Peak videos in car and out. And I just, I thought it was the greatest compliment in the world. And over the years, people have seen it. And, um, I mean, from people in Europe to, uh, here in America, the compliments were very nice to receive. And, uh, I was thinking to myself after I watched the entire video, I was, I went back and thought, well, let me look at my contract and see how much I'm making.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there a clause for a bonus in here somewhere?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next year's contract. We're going to. I'm going to go in uh, in the meeting room with Gertie, and we're going to watch that in-car as we're talking about next year's country.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the legendary party uh, and parties afterwards that followed and finding out that uh, maybe, maybe indeed, however much uh, party legends the AAR team thought they were. Uh, well, there were indeed some ex- executives from Toyota Japan who maybe moved the bar uh, higher than anyone expected.
2: So we won, We ended up winning the championship. Uh, I think Chris won the race. I was on the podium, so that gave us enough points to win the manufacturer Championship. After the race, was we celebrated. And AAR, Gurney, we celebrated better than any. Uh, with them, every race was a... A big party afterwards. Went to the restaurant. We we, we, we we shut the doors on it. We closed the restaurant down. And we ended every race victory with a champagne fight. In the restaurant. Wow! Right? Oh, yeah. We uh, One restaurant, we came back the second year, and uh, they said they were out of champagne. <laughs> we, we, we don't have any more champagne for you. Every race was a classic party afterwards. That was just Tan Gurney, and that was AAR. So, about... Two weeks after the season, end, maybe it's a little more, I get a phone call and Dan says the big cojones are coming over from Japan. Toyota motor sales in Torrance. Well, they're big, but they're not the real big cojones. Toyota corporate from Japan was coming over and the heavy breathers were coming, right? These were the guys that made all the decisions that, you know, Dan says, okay, well, we can't have any, you know, have a champagne fight at this restaurant. Because we was a restaurant somewhere around Torrance, a sushi restaurant. So he said we're going to be very diplomatic. No, nothing. No, no wild stuff, right? To celebrate the manufacturer's title. We got in there, and it was, you know, very, posh and very um, political, and you know, nodding and and saying all the right things. And, and next thing you know, the heavy boots start to get loose. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at Dan, you know, and they were sort of backslabbing each other, and you know, as they were pouring more sake, we must have went through uh, a keg of sake, and they were like getting up on the seat and you know, banging their, in their cups and, and and howling and oh, it was totally what I didn't expect. They were wilder than we used to, than we were, right? <laughs> And when we got out to the parking lot, after it was all over, you know, kind of, you know, everyone stumbled out of there and we got out
4: there and
2: I said to Dan, I said, man, I thought I thought those guys were, were really reserved <laughs> and they made us look bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was laughing and we, I, I was not expecting it. And that was the greatest surprise of, of the evening. I mean, these guys. Once they started uh, pounding Saki, oh boy! I mean, they 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 uh, they took off the the lamb suit. They went straight wolf.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was it was just the best year uh, I can I can remember with the team. Right to this day, um, it was the most memorable.
0: Most phone calls with my friend and show sponsor Ed Justice Jr. turn into history lessons. And recently, he took us back to a time in his youth, growing up in the 1950s, 1960s Southern California, where, surprisingly, the Golden State was the country's largest producer of Indy 500 cars. As post-war metal workers found new homes building the glorious roadsters that graced the Indianapolis Motor Speedway one of them famous vehicle not successful but definitely a step forward in history the sumar streamliner all part of Ed's tales for us here we get close to the finish of our episode 1000 special
5: well you know after World War two uh, was the great explosion for auto racing in, in America uh, all forms of racing but Indy car racing champ cars it was Called more back then, had a huge explosion in the Southern California area. And the war had an amazingly positive response. Uh, People like my dad, who had gone to aircraft mechanic school prior to the war, worked for Douglas Aircraft prior to the war, and then went into the Eighth Air Force and worked on airplanes during the war. He and thousands like him, that had similar experiences now that were uh, motorhead, car crazy, were able to go into these race car shops and bring that high level of skill set, use it to build these cars. But what it did is it raised the bar. Because as I always tell people, when it comes to aircraft mechanics, there's no, eh, that's good enough. That's that's close. Uh, No, and airplanes, it's either right or it's wrong. It's just that simple. And my dad told me many stories working at Douglas Aircraft where guys would get fired, they'd check your toolbox make sure all the tools are uh, put back together. Aircraft mechanics were a high, high level. And when you bring that into the racing world and uh, the aluminum fabrication and everything, it just raised the bar at IndyCar racing. That's why, you know, from 53 to 63, 1953 to 1963, we're talking about the years, 90% of the cars that raced in Indianapolis were produced at five shops. And I think it was about a 13 mile radius here in Los Angeles, Wow, Uh, you know, stretching from Glendale, uh, on the North end to Gardena on the South. And, you know, these people were, of course, the most well-known would be Frank Curtis, you know, Harry Miller, of course, an icon, an amazing man pre-war, but Harry Miller had gone bankrupt many times. And, and, uh, ultimately that's what happened. And of course, uh, Leo Goosen, the engine designer morphed into Offenhauser and and all that. That's a, Whole nother deal. But, you know, Frank Curtis was the most well known after the war. Second, and, you know, you can get into arguments over this stuff, but second would probably be AJ Watson. You know, Frank had what, five Indy 500 winners? I think AJ Watson had six Indy 500 winners of their cars of their construction. uh Then Luigi Lasowski, Eddie Kuzma, Quinn Epperly. You know, you had a few other guys that did one offs, but it just was an amazing time. And everybody's trying to outdo everybody. You know, I mean, They all influenced each other. I mean, Frank, for an example, at Curtis Craft, his draftsman was a guy by the name of John Bond. John and his wife, Elaine, later ran Road and Track magazine, owned it. Uh, That was his draftsman. Uh, Troutman and Barnes, that built the first chaparral, came out of Curtis Craft. I mean, on Art Ingalls, who worked at Curtis Craft, created the first go kart. This was this hotbed going on in, in Southern California. It was just like, I don't know, maybe Woodstock's not the right, but it was an explosion of talent and possibilities. And Glendale, I actually have a patch from back in that time period. There was a patch that was actually made that said, Glendale, home of the world's fastest race cars. Wow! And that, of course, was referring to Frank Curtis and A.J. Watson. Curtis's shop. Both of those shops still stand, interestingly enough. Curtis's shop was quite a bit bigger because Curtis was producing cars. I mean, uh, midgets, you know, they built a reported 500 midgets, uh, not too many sprint cars, uh, sport cars. Of course, the Curtis 500 sport car that, that ran at Pebble Beach and other early 50s sport car racing and all that. And Watson's shop was really small. And the last time I went by that shop, over on Palmer Avenue in, in Glendale, it was a motorcycle parts distribution business. And they, they had no idea of the history that had gone inside that building. Serious Indianapolis 500 history. He had guys like Earl Madman Muntz. So he gets connected with Frank Curtis and he buys the Curtis Streetcar and uh, turns it into the Muntz. And you know those sell at auction now. Frank made a uh, streamliner for Sumar Racing, which was Chapman Root and Don Smith. Chapman Root's grandfather, I think it was, his father or grandfather, was the designer of the Coke bottle. And they were a a Coke bottler. (laughs) Uh, Great family. Chapman Root's uh, wife was Susan, as I remember. And Don Smith's wife's name was Mary. Or it could have been vice versa. And Sumar was Susan and Mary, those two names conjugated together and that's where the sumar specials came from they had that Dreamliner built for jimmy Daywalt at indianapolis and probably
0: completely- the craziest looking indy yeah. 500 car of all time up to that
5: point oh un- unbelievable it looked marshall i think you'd say it looked like a bonneville car really it did. you know the funny thing is though they knew so little about uh aerodynamics It's not that wind tunnels weren't around, because wind tunnels were clearly around, but it was getting access to them, and it was more, it looks fast. They didn't know a lot about aerodynamics, so, you know, the car was actually catching a lot of air underneath and making it light. And as you probably know the story, they started peeling off bodywork on that super slick, streamlined, looked like it was going to be on the pole position car. And the more bodywork they got off, the faster the car went. (laughs) And yes. it ended up looking like a roadster.
0: <laughs> it looks like someone broke into the garage overnight, stole all the body panels. And indeed, if you want to talk about aerodynamic development, it's pretty crazy to build this streamliner car with a closed cockpit, right? Sitting inside this dome cockpit. And indeed, what's the fastest version of the car? Take off all the new ideas and just leave it looking like it had been stripped for parts.
5: That actual car, people wonder if if it survived, because, you know, they took it down to Daytona in 59. Bill France wanted to see if they could set a speed record to help promote the track, and Marshall Teague was driving the car, ended up having a crash, and he ended up uh dying and so everybody always figured that that car just demolished or whatever they did a lot of people just never knew what happened the car does sit in a museum in daytona beach restored the actual car and it's a beautiful car i mean that blue and and the white i'm so happy the car survived because it really is it's a it's a testament to an era when you could show up with some crazy idea seated the pants idea and put it on the track and literally develop it before the race and see if it works. And, uh, of course, you know, I credit Roger Penske being one of the main guys that changed that formula when he started doing all the testing, which maybe is hard for some people in today's world to understand, but there was a time when really race teams did not go out and do all this testing pre to the race. They didn't have the budget and they just figured they show up and, and I got it close and, and we'll let her go. And there was also a time when running a second car was a negative thing. For a lot of teams made it worse than better. And that formula has obviously changed. But LA in that era was an amazing time.
0: We're going to stay with a history lesson theme. Going back to our pal Bruce Canapa, talking about Daytona, 1982. Amazing 24-hour race. Car that he shared with... Bobby Rahal, Jim Truman, one of the first high downforce prototypes, the March 82G, powered by a big old mean Chevrolet. Rahal put that on the pole in 1982. Boy, he want to talk about top speeds. Wait till Bruce tells you what it hit, entering turn three. Love this conversation though, learning about what it was like to trust the air to get you through the corner faster than ever before as ground effects made their way into motor racing
6: I was actually scheduled to drive a 935 that year and then at the last minute there was a change going on with who was driving the march and I was asked if I would uh, wanted to drive the march and, and of course I had I had zero experience well we really all had zero experience it was the beginning of ground effects there that was that car was chassis 01, 82 g first 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 ground effect sports car that uh, Robin Hurd and the guys at March had built and so i got the invite to drive with those guys and then uh, we went to daytona and there wasn't any time to practice in it for me bobby really spent the week getting it sorted out it had too much downforce when we got there and it would porpoise down the back straight away and you know they kept changing under trays and changing you know taking the wing out of it and they, they were removing downforce that thing had so much downforce, they were taking it out instead of adding it in by the time it was race ready you know and in, in in qualifying time it was it was fully sorted out it was a, it was a tried quite a car by then and Bobby put it on the pole. I, I ended up, I think I had one night practice in it because obviously Jim was paying the bills, a big chunk of it with red roof ends and he needed seat time in it. I've always been a guy that just says, I'll just climb in the car and figure it out. I don't care. I'll, you know, (laughs) I'll figure it out when it's time. And so, um, Jim spent enough time in it to get comfortable with it. And I think I did one night practice if I recall. And, um, Shit! I thought it was the most incredible thing I'd ever driven. And that car was extremely fast. Bobby put it on the pole, and at one point in the race, I set the fastest race lap in it. But it was just—I mean, it was just magic. That thing—it—it was—it was almost not real because during the race we were lapping 935s every hour and fifteen or hour and thirty minutes. Jeez. We were lapping the rest of the field, and we needed to because it, unfortunately, it had the wrong gearbox in. It, it had two small. gearbox. Box that had a dg 300 instead of the big box and and the box had failures and so we'd get ahead and then come in and they'd fix the gearbox and do this and do that we go back out and get ahead again and And finally, late, late, late in the race, and I don't recall exactly, I think 23 hours or something, it it finally failed completely and we couldn't finish. But uh, because the first march, they didn't think about drivers in that thing. Our, our, Our butt was on the floor. There was no seat on the floor. You couldn't have one. So when you looked in the car, there was the aluminum on the bottom, and then there was the molded foam around you, around your back and your shoulders. That was all you had for a seat was a back, basically, because if you had and, – and even then, now Bobby's taller than I am, obviously, and we, we were all banging our head on, on the front roll bar hoop uh, where the windscreen is because that there was no room in that thing. It was too shallow. So uh, they, they rebuilt those later and changed that in them, put some roof height in them. <laughs> we were banging our head the whole 24 hours of that thing sitting with our butt on the floor. And we, and you know what? We didn't care. <laughs> it didn't matter we were I never even noticed it was uncomfortable till a week later <laughs> I was trying to recover that was fun we had a great time with that car it was it was pretty cool and then you know we we all got reacquainted with it i don't know 4 years ago or 5 years ago at Amelia Island the gentleman that owned it brought it to Amelia Island and i hadn't seen it bought, none of us had seen it since back then you know so bobby and i got to see it again it was pretty cool so
0: and what was this like having driven high horsepower porsches ones that might have had a big wing at the back and a lot of swoopy fenders and such they had some downforce but they weren't quote downforce vehicles describe what it was like at the dawn of downforce in the gtp era uh and having to really learn to trust uh, air as your friend to make incredible lap times.
5: Well,
6: and, and, and trust is exactly the right word. I had no concept of, of a ground effects car. I think Bobby probably did by then with the Indy cars. He had some, but I didn't. And, um, you know, I mean, you basically just had to, to, I mean, I listened to Bobby, but you listen to guys like Bobby or, or, or you listen to Robin Hurd who told you what it could do and what it would do. And, 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 and he told you, you need to trust it and just do it. And, um, And the reality was you just kind of, you know, you didn't have much time. You never have much time to creep up on in a race car. You got to just say, okay, let's go. And then then what you creep up on is the last 10th, you know, not the not the first 10th. So um, so it was the car was so stable compared to a rear engine car and the car was so. drivable in terms of turn in and all those kinds of things and rotation on the throttle you know in in a tight corner that it that it really wasn't uncomfortable it was it was more just realizing that that it had a lot more grip than anything you'd ever driven i mean a lot more and that you could just kind of pick up the throttle much earlier set on well first of all step on the brake much later. And pick up the throttle much earlier and carry the speed to the corner. And uh, um, and well, and the nice thing was, is we had twenty four hours to learn that, didn't we? So uh, we had plenty of seat time. But it was, it was magic. I mean, it was, it was. Because you couldn't see it and you didn't feel it, it was just a whole different world to get in a car and have it just stuck to the ground, that much more grip. I mean, you just, I mean, I, yeah, you had to equate to the fact that you felt like the tires were twice as wide and you had, you know, four times as many wings on it because it just had that kind of grip level to it. And in that car, and Bobby and I talked about it a long time ago, but I, I think, I think my recollection was we hit 230 going into three in that thing. Um, uh, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood, it was, it was really fast because, you know, you, you got out, you, you, you went onto the banking fast from over at two out of the road course and, and you carried so much speed going even on before you went down the back straightaway and, and the car made good power that had a, that had a Franz Weiss motor in it, you know, a Chevrolet, I think it was probably a three hundred fifty three hundred sixty 360 inch engine in it, whatever it was thing made great power, great torque and grunt. So it didn't labor much to go fast it really pulled like a like a train yeah it it was it was an amazing experience first time that's for sure it's still an amazing experience for me even in the historic cars when you climb in a 962 or you know i've driven the nissan um the 90 nissan gtp car and i've driven a toyota gtp car and and it still it it gets your attention and, it, and it's impressive at how much downforce and grip you have in all those cars it's that was an incredible error in those cars. And it's what started with the Lola. It started with those two cars, the Lola and the March. And uh, that was a big transition from conventional race cars.
0: Once his time as a Toyota Formula One driver had come to an end, Alan McNish received a call from Renault F1, inquiring about a testing contract. On the other end of the line, soon on the other end of the table, was the infamous Italian Flavio Briatore. McNish found the negotiations. Something altogether different than expected. Took away some lessons that serve the Scots driver clients today.
7: I had a telephone call and I was actually trying to renegotiate the rent of my apartment here in Monaco. And uh, basically it was Flavio and it was a few words. What are you doing Tuesday? Uh, Monday, sorry, Monday. Uh, Nothing? Right, be in the office, 10 o'clock. Okay. And phone down. You know, there was no niceties. There was no, this is Flavio or anything else. It was straight to it and uh, turned up uh, into the office and uh, he said, okay, what's your situation? I explained where we were. He said, right, this is what we want to do. We want to do the Friday testing agreement, which would mean that they would be limited to 20 tests. So then it was open testing. So at Toyota, I think I'd done like 60 test days myself. Um, So 20 tests. Plus, also, they had a third car on every Friday morning. And so that's what we want to do. Uh, we want you to do this. We want you to work with Pat Simmons to do the development on the Friday mornings. And then Fernando Alonso and Jarno Trulli, who were the two race drivers, uh, then they would take it over from there. And, uh, you know, obviously, as a Scotsman, you get very quickly down to the subject of cash. What's it going to be? And it was absolutely straight, right at the top correct level. Um, without any haggling, any discussions. And within about, I would say, 15, 20 minutes, we had done the basics of the deal. He obviously told me what he wanted to do. I saw the picture of what he wanted to do, thought it was going to be super tough, actually. Um, But the background, the way they were working at it, was so pre-engineered in their head that it was actually quite spellbinding. And then at the end of the meeting, Mike Gascoigne came in, he explained on the operational point how they were going to run it, which was changing engines at lunchtime of those 20 days. So we would run in the morning, do an engine's mileage in the morning, change at lunchtime, do an engine's mileage in the afternoon. The car design had been set up to allow that. The test team had been prepared to to be able to achieve that. In the afternoon, I was already making a seat. And it came back to me that Flavio is very straightforward. It was straightforward that that's what he wanted to achieve and he was just going to achieve it there was not going to be a wasted energy and haggling a bit left or a bit right or up or down it was it right that's what we're going to do that's how we're going to do it are you in yes right let's move forward and it was an education for me when I look at you know my position now as well to understand that actually you've got to sometimes just be very clear in what you want and go after it and not accept that you're going to have anything Less, you're just going to go after it and make it work. Because if you go in thinking it may work or how you've just got to make it work, and they were extremely clear they wanted to make it work. And I am a big believer that actually that made the Renault team much more efficient as well, because they had to deliver on much less mileage than any other team on the grid, apart from Jordan and I think Minardi, who also opted for the Friday testing. And um, they were one of the top teams. And I think that set up the World Championships for Fernando in the next two years. Look, I've been fortunate. I've had to deal with quite a lot of um, people like Ron Dennis, Flavio Briatori, Ovi Anderson, Tom Walkinshaw, Dr. O'Rich, um And very different styles, really, really different styles throughout my time. The one thing that I say was clear with them all was that you do the deal. You look in their eye, they're buying you as a driver. They're not buying management, they're buying you. And you're buying into them. And when the handshake was done with them all, and they were all done in a handshake, actually, and then obviously converted later, then that was it. It was no questions. And in fact, with Tom Walkinshaw, the handshake agreement ran through to the end of the contract because the contract point... Um, Just because of various different details with the company structures um, took like six months for it to to actually go through. And their handshake was their bond. And that was that was the equivalent. I think some of the people that I just mentioned probably don't have that reputation. And I can only take people as I find them. But uh, that thing, when you look someone in the eye, and you shake their hand. And that's as good as a signature on an agreement. Or, in fact, it's better than a signature on agreement, actually. I think nowadays um then you know that's a, an important factor that probably gets overlooked in negotiations at the moment
0: the jaguar xjr14 prototype designed by ross braun was hailed as a formula one car with fenders in the late 80s and early 90s version of the fi world endurance championship the f1 v8 powered cat went head to head against the mercedes factory where young michael schumacher prepared for formula one stardom peugeot and Mazda also waged war in the manufacturer series. A legend in its own right, 1991's XJR14, as David Brabham recounts, was better and faster than the F1 car he drove the year before.
8: 91, I didn't stay with Brabham. And I was looking for another drive and I ended up back in 3000 with Team Roney. I didn't have any money, but they they had Fernando Plato racing and he brought money. And and so the team put a second car together. They want someone with experience. And and I I did about four races with them. And then I did the XJR 15 Intercontinental Cup uh, for TWR. Um, I finished second behind Derek Warwick at Monaco. And then when I was... When I was there, they said, how would you like to test drive the XJR 14? And I went, really? Yeah, that'd be cool because at the time, I mean, you know, they were absolutely hammering it in, in sports car racing in the World Endurance Championship. And, and I thought, wow, that's going to be a great experience. So they said, well, call us when you get back. So I go home, I ring up during the week and I say, hey, you know, I'm just following up on those conversations about a test and then they said well there's no point in you testing if you don't drive for us and I said well hang on a minute you are you offering me a drive they said yeah we need a driver we did Martin Brundle's not going to be doing the the rest of the season after Le Mans and we're looking for a third driver because back then there were only three drivers in TWR for for that team so Derek Warwick and Teo Farby were the main drivers and at the time uh, Martin Brundle would start in one car and finish in the other, so he was not going to be a championship contender because he couldn't do all the races. So they needed to find a replacement for Martin, and I and I got I got the call. I thought fantastic, so I went back to the team Roney to say, look, this is my situation because I didn't say yes straight away. I said, look, I got to talk to my former three thousand team, and they said, listen, mate, we haven't got any money for you anyway, so you better get going. So. I, 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 ran back, I, I rang them back up and said, right, we're on. So we did a deal and, and I went off to Lucie Leveur in France, as, which is a little sort of airfield test track, which was the first time uh, I got to drive the car. And I, I remember getting in it and just starting to go round and round and round, thinking, oh my God, what have I just jumped in? This thing was amazing. And this, and you sort of mentioned, you know, quicker than my Brabham, it would have qualified that year in the top 10 of a Formula One race. That's how fast this thing was. Uh, and the faster and faster I went, the the more this thing stuck. And I was just, I just couldn't believe it. So we go off to the Nürburgring, uh, well, it was not the 1000K at the time, it Was I think it was the uh, 350 or something. It was a three hour race. And I started in one car. Um, I started in Derek Warwick's car, and I finished in Teo Fabi's car. And when I started the race, I think I was third, fourth, about fourth, and Keke Rosberg was in front of me with the Peugeot. He was spitting oil out straight away. Michael Schumacher in the Mercedes was behind me, and, and I was starting to really struggle to see on, on in front of me. And I'm trying to decide, do I come in or not? Anyway, next thing, Rosberg pulls over – Teo spun on the oil, and I found myself in the lead. And Schumacher, behind me, pulled into the pits because he couldn't see. He had to clean his windscreen, and I was in front of him. So you can imagine how bad thing, how bad mine was. So I end up doing my stint, literally trying to see through little gaps in in the windscreen, and I couldn't quite see straight in front. So I'm looking at sort of the, my sides and looking at the brake markers to kind of think, okay, this is where I am. And I'm still in the lead. If I had a clean windscreen, I would have absolutely disappeared because the thing was so fast. And then I came and someone got me on the last lap of my uh, stint, came in second, got out of the car. And then I jumped in the other car to finish the race. And I ended up finishing first and second in my very first world championship race. It was an amazing turnaround from the 1990 and early 91 season to then jump in and be a factory works team for TWR, working with Ross Braun and and, and, the, and the team. And it was my first real experience, what I would say, an absolute professional, well-drilled, well-financed team that had a car that was capable of winning. And, and that, again, was a fantastic experience. I went from one extreme to the other, and, I, and having driven also with Derek and Teo, Teo was suky, silky smooth. Derek was really aggressive with the car. So the setups were completely different. So I learned, I learned how to adapt my driving style around the set – well, a driving style around a setup to get the most out of it. So, uh, again, that was really critical for me to have a long career in sports cars – because it didn't matter what I got in, I could adapt quickly. And I'm sure a lot of that training came from uh, being a Jaguar driver in 91. The thing was, this thing had an incredible amount of downfalls, massive tunnels, big double-decker rear wing. I'd never, ever remember once having an opposite lock and swing. The rear was just planted. The only issue it had was you would then obviously as you're you're getting quicker and quicker and you, you you're on the limit. The front would start to understeer in the high speed because it just had too much rear grip. And then when you when you tried to get more front grip, you had to kind of the only way you could really do it was lower the front. To, to make the center of pressure move forward. But it was a knife edge between a little bit more front or porpoising. I used to drive with my visor up with race tape on my visor to stop it. When when it was porpoising at the end of the straight, it would close my lid. It was, it was that violent at the end of the straight. Wow. We couldn't really get that out, and they weren't going to spend money You know, trying to trying to fix it, we just had to work around it. The car was winning the championship, and little did I know that that was kind of probably going to be the end of it. Even though I had I I had agreed to race for them the following year uh, with that program, Uh, they ended. uh, We won the world championship, and then it all all closed. And Tom went off to Benetton, and you know there was all that sort of stuff going on in the background. But it doesn't matter who you talk to who drove that car whenever they're asked, what was what's what was the most impressive car you've ever driven in your career? That is number one.
0: There aren't very many Formula One cars that are crazier than Gordon Murray's 1976 Rabum Alfa Romeo fan car. Flat 12 engine, that was the normal part. It was the big fan at the back, creating downforce by suction. Well, our man, Tony Dow, mechanic on that car, along with another relatively famous man on the team side from england that being clive howell here's a tale of anderstorp sweden Nicky lauda the single win for this brabham fan car questions about mileage and cash and all manner of things that probably should not have happened as they did
9: one of the early good stories was uh, brabham there was a guy called Clive Howell who up until about a year ago was the factory manager at Penske in um, uh, in Reading, yeah. or, uh, North Carolina. You know, he, he retired a few years back. When we built the fan car, um, we had a Mercedes van and we put all the stuff in the Mercedes van to convert the cars back if we didn't get through tech inspection and they the cars weren't any re- really any good. Again, Clive and myself drove the van to Felixstowe and then got the ferry across to Sweden. And neither of us had done that before. So when you get to Sweden and you're going in, what you have to do is declare how many kilometres you're going to do in the country. Otherwise, they uh, I'm not sure it's fine or you have to pay. Uh, an amount for what you go over or whatever. And we were one of the first off the ferry. I didn't want to go back to the van and get the uh, mileage off the van and go back and lose the place in the line because it would have taken forever. So I invented from memory what the kilometers were on the uh, dash. Well, I wasn't so far out. I was only about 250 k's out. So anyway, we went off and we won the bloody race and Alfa Romeo gave us loads of money to go and have a good time um, at the port, Um, all the strip clubs and everything on the way back. And uh, but when we got back, we realized that we were going to have to spend all this money to pay the fine on because we were massively over the kilometres. So what we did, we, uh, we clocked the van um, and we managed to pry the surround off, get the glass out, and we were clicking back the drums and we managed to stab one of the drums with a screwdriver so that they wouldn't move. So we reassembled it and we were driving round and round the assembly area trying to get the kilometres to click back before we went through the uh, the departure. We couldn't do it. So what we did, we dived in front of one of the other vans and we were one of the first on the boat. So we were way down in the, the hold of the boat while we were in the bar. we They kept paging for the people for that van and we knew that they would never unload everything and start again. So we got away with it, um, but it was... Uh, um, it was hilarious uh, what went on to get there.
0: And what was that like, mate, with that such an iconic uh, success in Formula One?
9: There, there is a story about that because the design of the fan, the bearings that held the shaft were two radial ball bearings. And what you were meant to do was just tighten up the fan on the shaft until the play disappeared out of the ball bearings. Uh, and then drill the shaft and put a cotter pin through it unfortunately when you i mean the, the thing had so much downforce the uh the fan was going round. if the motor was running to 12 the gearing meant it was at 25 000 to thirty thousand for the fan and so it was throwing the um hub was fretting on the shaft and coming loose when well, we were never going to finish the race so on Race night, amano Kogi, you know, taking it apart and the bearings were all falling apart. And he said to me, uh, what are we going to do about this? And I said, well, I'll tell you what we should do, but I don't think Gordon would be too impressed with it. And he said, because it goes against his design. And he said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, this is no different from a two stroke engine where you have a bearing at each end and what you should have a spacer in between it. And I said, all we've got to do is put a spacer on the shaft so we tight the hub up really tight without crushing the bearings. And so that's what we did without Gordon knowing. And, you know, lo and behold, we went and won the race. (laughs) Jesus.
0: (laughs) The tales of the things done by mechanics uh, that designers uh, never know about.
9: Well, Gordon got to know about it because Bernie gave me a bonus for doing it. So I wasn't the most popular person for a while.
0: Let's try these facts on for size. Never raced an Indy car. Only done one open-wheel race. That being in a small, low-powered car. And zero oval experience. Sounds like the perfect recipe for disaster. Makes Lynn St. James debut the 1992 Indy 500 where freezing temperatures and constant calamity, life-altering crashes in some cases made for one of the most harrowing experiences a rookie could encounter at the Speedway. St. James became the second woman to race at the Indy 500 15 years after the first. Miss Janet Guthrie, Speedway Royalty. Lynn's tales at the Speedway in 1992 with Dick Simon Racing. One to remember, amazing lessons to take home.
3: In 1988, I got to drive an IndyCar for the first time, and and Dick Simon gave me the opportunity. And it was at a track in Memphis, which is a basically a drag strip that has a little return route. So it's pretty short, tight, you know, But I and I, I fell in love with it. And it took me four years, and 150 companies, 149 said no, and the 150th that said yes was JCPenney. And I was able to put the deal together with Dick. But the reality was... I mean, I got to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as a rookie in 1992, besides A, being the oldest rookie in the history of the race, which I didn't know at the time. B, it was only my second open-wheel race ever. I raced an open-wheel car at Phoenix in one of the support races the year they had the Formula One race here. It was my first oval, complete oval, other than the Talladega runs, and of course running at Daytona. So I don't recommend it to anybody, but... um, but it was what it was, you know, I wasn't about to say, Oh, well, I, maybe I can't do this, you know, because of those things. But, you know, there's a lot of things that sometimes have to come together that you don't even know that are important at the time, but having a team owner who was a former driver and also a great teacher, Dick is, he's taught skiing. He, you know, Dick is just one of those communicators that actually a knows what he's talking about. Cause he was, has, but has been in the race car. B he's a great explainer and a great teacher And three he really trusts and believes his drivers you give him good input and he's really going to work with you and so that was a beautiful combination and so i spent more time in the pace car than i think any of the other rookies i mean i just was out there any particular ever moment driving around in the pace car when for the rookie program at the time. And I mean, Dick just had the ability to tell me what I needed to know when I needed to know it. You know, you can't know all of it at one time. And you really conquer Indy, you know, one bite at a time, one lap at a time. And, you know, people like Pete Halsburn gave me that. I came back to the garage one day and they, they said, hey, there was a guy here that missed you. And he left a note on the board. And up on the board, it said, dear Lynn, believe your butt. Love, Pete. And You know, it was true what you, you know, you had to understand that if the car doesn't feel right on any given moment at Indy, other than in the race, and even sometimes maybe in the race, is you don't drive around it, you come in. I mean, that's why you see us make gajillion pit stops during practice. You know, those were things that really pay dividends as opposed to other forms of motorsports, where if the car's not right, you drive around it, you figure it out. You know, you figure out what do you need to change to, to get the time. And, and at Indy, it just doesn't work that way. So I just had gobs of good information, gobs of seat time, thanks to Dick, gobs of desire. And, you know, actually, a, a, a old racer friend of mine, an open wheel racer, Formula V racer, told me a long time ago, he said, Lynn, you should be an open wheel because your driving style is so well suited to it. You're smooth, you're smart, you know, you're, you're strategic and you know what, that's what it takes in an open wheel race and an in Indy particularly. So I think I finally found all the things came together. My driving style is suited to Indy. Uh, Lee White had said once, you know, how I love high speed corners. Well, there's four of those at the track. And so it was this blend of assets and some liabilities that, the assets I guess overweighed the liabilities and, and I was I was in heaven. I mean, I was so I felt so right there by the time it was the race. Actually I qualified the first weekend in the Ford Cosworth. It was the old Cosworth. And I don't remember what position I was in, and I don't even remember exactly. My speed was, I think, 219, but it was like Dick said to me after the end of that Sunday, you know, the end of the first weekend of qualifying, he said, Len, I'm worried. He said, that's the fastest that car will ever go. I mean, it's nothing to do with your ability to get everything out of the car. That is, it's a 91 Lola with an old Cosworth engine. That's as much as you're going to get out of it. But I'm worried that 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 time's going to hold. He said to me... um, I I hate to tell you this because I know what you're going to do. But he said, I have a backup car that has a back that has a Chevy engine in it. And once that car qualifies, I have a backup car that has the Chevy engine, the backup to that car. And I could put that engine in in your car. Um, But I'm not going to do that. I can't do that until that second car qualifies. And I'm not going to do that to you because I know how long you've had Ford Motor Company as a sponsor and, and it will ruin your relationship with Ford. And because you can't race in a Chevy. And he said, but if you get approval from Ford, I'll put you in it. So I spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of that week, not driving in the field, but not strongly in the field and bugging. And I call. I talked to Michael Cranefus. I talked to, you know, I mean, I could go into the whole story about how that was when they had the XP engine and, I tried to get Michael. I said, okay, if I have to be in that engine, then then tell Newman-Haas I want to be in their car <laughs> and or have them release one of the cars to Dick Simon. I mean, I was trying everything. And on Thursday of that week, uh, my last straw was to contact one of my uh, mentors and, you know, really – it was a real champion at Ford, um, who was the head of PR, David Scott. And it was the day of the actual board meeting. He finally got back to me and I gave him the scenario and he goes, he said, I'm really busy, but he said, well, let me work on this. And do you have a fax number? And I, and I gave him the fax number at the Speedway press room. And at the end of that day, I got a fax letter from David Scott, who was the head of PR at Ford, saying, I understand you're having some problems at Indy. Um, if, you have to do, if you have to do it in a Chevy, just do it. It was a real short letter. Wow. And, um, and I go, Dick, <laughs> here's the deal. I got approval from Ford. And so, so I didn't get in that car until like Saturday to practice because he did he went ahead and he took the chance of putting that backup engine in my car the guys worked on it for a couple days did that transfer you know so i didn't have a lot of time in that car with the chevy power and um but yet i i still qualified that second weekend and i remember you know how they always do the pictures after you know you you come off the track and you pull up in pit lane and you do the and they give you the hats you got all these different hats and i remember they handed me the chevy hat with the bow tie on it and i i I said i can't do that (laughs) I mean, I had a Ford Ford logo on my suit, but I just said I can't, I just can't do that. So so that was particularly gratifying because I was in a car that I hadn't spent much time in and that I had all that pressure all week thinking that I may, you know, I said, Dick, I'm not leaving. This is the Indy 500, you know, but I was afraid that maybe that was going to happen
0: so you come into your debut d 500 extreme conditions right the bitter cold guerrero pulse that are crashing on the pace lap uh so many cars hard into the wall tires struggling to get up to speed right big names impressive names crashing constantly it was treacherous out there you coming in as a rookie With your endurance racing experience, whether it's rain, cold, you name it, you know all kinds of wacky conditions. always wondered if that 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring, Le Mans mindset of gotta get to the finish... Maybe there are places to not overcommit myself and risk putting us out of the race. I'm curious if any of that shone through in your debut in 92, which will always be remembered for the cold and crashes.
3: Yeah, it was. I think still the coldest, the coldest day of the race. Well, it was part of that. I mean, throughout the month, actually, I remember utilizing and gaining my confidence by saying, (laughs) You know, you've been to Talladega, you've you've done the 24 hours of Daytona, you you've been to Le Mans. I mean, I used a lot of the I drew my confidence and some some knowledge from those experiences to offset what I didn't have. But during the race, I think the thing that played into it more than anything, Marshall, was I came from racing where. When you have a yellow, that your tires are not there. That when when it goes green, you have at least a half a lap. Usually, you know, two or three corners on a road course before you can really lean on the tires. At least back then. And so I had this rhythm already in my in my experience base, which was to not expect to grip immediately You know, half the time when they when the track would go green, I was still getting ready to go through three. I mean, I'd be on the back straightaway, you know, because I wasn't you know setting the world on fire. I mean, I wasn't with the front runners. I was blown away I'm like you're right holy shit it would be like the track would go green as I'm coming into three and I it would already be yellow by the time I was either at start finish or even four you know because somebody else crashed and I think the experienced veterans were freaking spoiled because they were so used to those tires always being right there because they they hadn't been in those conditions in so long and so I think they just leaned on them because in Later, as I went through my IndyCar experience, I found out that the tires, you can lean on them right away. So I had to change that up as I later, but my rookie year, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different and I didn't know any better. So I was using my road racing experience mindset to say, okay, you know, you're, you get on the power, but you just not 100% until you get to turn one if you're still having to go through three and four. It was my experience from not knowing that the tire, not trusting the tires and knowing that I was going to have everything with those tires. That's what enabled me to have so many restarts and never crash. Before the start, when when I saw Guerrero crash, I was like, holy shit. I mean, I remember literally saying, Lynn, pay attention. I mean, I you know talked to myself and I'm during the, the multiple pace laps. I'm like, okay, pay attention. And then I saw that, and I'm like, holy shit, you got to really pay attention to that one. You know, if the pole sitter just crashed, I was like awestruck. But throughout the race, as I mentioned, you know, all these crashes, and I mean, it was just, it was just stay in the moment, and just, as I said, I was learning every lap. I was actually getting better. My my strategy of passing was totally, totally sucked during the race, and I was learning as I went. I'd watch, I'd follow John Paul Jr., and I'd watch him set up a pass, and I'm like, oh, that's how I do it, because it's different. You know, you don't dive into a corner and like you do on a, on a road course. And so the race was a huge learning experience, but it was also the whole time I was just in my element. I, I never was out of my element, so I learned all the way. Every lap was a learning experience. Towards the end, you know, I was kind of bit, much more of, of a comfortable groove, but, you know, because obviously there were less cars on the track as well. I remember being chased, basically, I mean, I, in my rearview mirror, car kept was gaining on me. And I remember the crew telling me, don't worry about it. It's not for position. I learned then and later, first of all, it was AJ. And secondly, I learned later that his guys were on the radio telling you can't let a girl be. <laughs> so it was for position, damn it. And he got by me. And um, and I remember after the checkered flag beating on my steering wheel. I seriously, it was like, I and I, it wasn't just because I did, at that point, I still didn't know it was for position. But I just remember beating on the steering wheel because I'm like, no, I want one more lap. I need one more lap. I know I can get him back. I mean, I was just still racing, even though the race was over. So it wasn't until I pulled into pit lane when it was literally over that then I had this huge... You know, elation of oh my god! I just raced and finished in the Indy 500. You know, do you? It didn't hit me until I came off track and uh, and when I stood up in the car. I know this is a crazy memory, but when I stood up in the car because I'd never run. I mean, that was a long. That was like four hours long. You know what I mean? And even though a lot of those were under yellow, you're still going around in circles. And I mean, I stood up in the car and I mean, it was like my body was still swaying in the rhythm of going around. I mean, it was like I felt like I was drunk. You know what I mean? I just kept swaying from right to left. It's like really strange. You know, throughout the month, I mean, I, it was I kept thinking, you know, it's just really too bad that so much time had gone, you know, since Janet for, to me. I mean, it was over a decade and, you know, and, and I was like, God, that's really too bad. But in reality, it was probably, again, one of those things you could never you know, control or manage or, or design it was probably a good thing, you know, because there were just enough time had gone by and there were still a lot of people were still around that were there back in the 70s. But, you know, society was a little bit different, I think, really quite different in the 90s than it was in the 70s, early 90s. I just kept my head down. There were some folks that there were some attitudes and issues. I mean, I'm a, I'll am tell you one story, which is a hoot. This was during testing, but I remember I needed to go to the bathroom and I was in Gasoline Alley, right where the Gasoline Alley crossed. Over is and the and the the actual public restrooms are quite a walk down and so but somebody told me that there was a restroom in this little building this little room right across from where the press room used to be as um, you cut across gasoline alley and I thought great so I went in and there was a bunch of the yellow shirts or officials they were all sitting there I think they were playing cards or something oh I said hi and I walked through and I there because there was a bathroom door I could see it and I went to the bathroom and I left and. I said, you know, have a good day or something. And I left and then about, I don't know, half hour later, Dick says to me, what the hell did you do? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, they're just, everybody's talking about the fact that you just went in and used the bathroom. I'm like, so? And I guess there was a sensitivity because I guess Janet made a big deal about the fact that there was not a, a special, you know, ladies room for drivers and that she had to change and use the public restrooms. But, you know, it was stuff like that that I just was thought was bizarre and that I never expected to happen. So there was some of that residue still left. I just kept my head down for the whole month. And I didn't really know what people thought necessarily until I was, when I was named rookie of the year, I knew that was an incredible piece of validation because I never ever expected that. I mean, there were, I think 11 rookies. I, I just never in my wildest dreams thought that would be happen. And I think the fact that it did was sort of a, it was a validation that sort of resonated whether you whether you liked it or not, or whether you agreed with it or not, it kind of resonated through the entire community and the racing community. And, and I'm proud of that. But I gotta tell you, it was funny. You know, the next race is usually Detroit and I was still working for Ford and I had to go to a press day I wasn't racing IndyCar at Detroit, um, but I had to go to a a Ford racing media day around the Detroit Grand Prix and I showed up and everybody's just, you know, acting normal. We're all just shooting the ship. Nobody, not one person said, hey, good job at Indy or congratulations or anything. It was like it never happened. And finally around a bunch of guys, you know, media people and some of the other Ford drivers, I go, did anybody watch the 500?" (laughs) I was like, damn it. I learned then, you know, it's, it's a moment. It's a moment, but those moments are forgotten very quickly.
0: Jim Busby had a love hate relationship with more than one Porsche 935. In fact, Joe Hoppen, a big player in Audi and Porsche's North American racing programs, asked him to be the first to introduce the 935 into IMSA GT competition. Owing to the strong relationships he had, with IMSA co-founder, the father of IMSA, John Bishop, and hilarity ensues. Whether it is insights on driving a 935 like a sprint car to the time that Jim went to Laguna Seca and brought an unanticipated premature end, temporary end to the IMSA race there, it makes you wonder how anybody survived the 1970s and 1980s in North American motor racing.
4: Backing up to the 935, I got a call from Joe Hoppin one day, and he said, I'm really having a hard time convincing John Bishop to accept the Porsche 935. Well, and you seem to have Bishop's ear to some extent. And I said, I don't know. Some days I know I piss him off. And I, so I talked to John and said, well, what do you think? You're ever going to let this? You know the Monza's too fast and Porsches can't race against it. There's a lot of privateers that would buy Porsche racing cars and support your series, which has kind of been the basis of your series for some time now. Well, yeah, you know, but typical political stuff. That goes on in race. And I said, okay. And so I called Joe back and I said, you know, I just don't think that we're going to get those things in it. He says, well, let's do this. Why don't I send you one? And uh, and you and Rick Mears can drive it at Watkins Glen and maybe Mid-Ohio and stuff like that. Because those weren't inter-races. One was World Championship and the other Lumberman 500 or whatever they called it at the time. Not part of the championship. So so I said, well, yeah, okay. I mean, what do you want me to do? He said, oh, I'll send you a car. So LAX, I get the call and this car's sitting up there and it's a new 935 single turbo, 2.8. Well, as you know, it didn't take long before we turned the transmissions upside down. They were twin turbos. They became uh, three liters. Then they became 3.1, then 3.2. Uh, and they went from, I'm going to make up a number, uh, 620 horsepower to 1,000. Welded on cylinder heads, you know, you name it, we did it. And dial was key in a lot of that development and I'm proud to say that Andal and I go back to the RSR days and that, and that was the last ebb of it and it became I think a GT car GTO I guess is what the 935 was is so anyway this car comes in and it's white uh, and I'm I'm not paying for it and it's just sitting on our shop floor and we're going to go to Watkins Glen and we'd already converted it to a twin at that point but when we get to the race at the Gantt Glen they open the trailer doors and the entire car says Jim Busby on it I mean big as you please I mean it was across the doors it was on the hood it was everywhere and what had happened? Larry Lee was our lettering guy, and we painted our cars there at the shop, and and he lettered them, and then they went to the races. Well, I had left that afternoon, and it was the car was in pure white, and that's the way I was going to race it with some numbers on it, and I and I'd driven the car at Riverside in a couple of places. And I liked it because he drive them like a sprint car. You know, you, you ran a lot of rear brake, uh, huge rear tires, tended to understand a little understeer a little bit. And when, and particularly while the boost was wasting its time coming up. And so what we did is ran a lot of rear brake, stiff anti-roll bar in the rear, and we'd back them into the corner and, and basically almost lock the rear wheels to turn the cars. And once they turn while you're sliding into the corner, you got the throttle back on the floor and by the time the boost comes up it launches it squats down and launches you out of the corner. So you get used to developing that new system of driving up. They felt good driving them off the rear wheels and that's why they laid down those huge black stripes leaving every corner and and made all that racket and popping and hissing and that was all because of the, with the engine hanging behind the rear axle. So having said that, the car gets loaded in the truck and leaves for the Glen. And I go home, but as I go out the door, Larry Lee in and he says, well, who's the sponsor? What do I put on this thing? And I laughingly said, I guess I am and walked out the door. They take it out of the truck. In front of God and everybody, my signature, which he's copied off what I used to put on my helmet and stuff like that, it's huge. I mean, it's like five feet long on the doors and three and a half feet across the hood and across the roof and everything else. I am so embarrassed that I want to put a bag over my head when I go to the grid. It's painted on. These aren't stickers. And that is how this Busby first uh, 935 in the country to be raced came out of the truck and was raced i think i finished second to x or third greg won x was second i was third at the lumberman's we dropped out of the london's men race with a broken oil line and i raced it a few more times and then i said look joe i don't have a sponsor of this thing what am i going to do with it? he said oh here i just got a call from otis chandler from the la times sell it to him i said sell it to him for what he said uh uh uh, uh um 70 grand I said, okay, what do I do with the money? He said, send it to me. So that was my initial 935. And my I subsequently drove with Moretti and... Uh, and then i bought the morety car when the bmw deal was so awful it, and it wasn't their fault the march chassis that was built was intended for the turbocharged six-cylinder engine which never came so here i'm racing this thing with this basically street engine in it and it was embarrassing so i put a chevy in it and that didn't help anything and uh, and and it finally it tried to kill me so many times the wheels fell off at riverside going into six the, we're going to say it, launch the left front suspension. I went over the fence into the staging area. And I got out of the car and coolers and the Cox newspaper people were all there. And they said, what are we going to do? And I said, "I, I don't want to drive this thing anymore. It's going to kill me. And they said, well, let's get a 935. And I said, how would we do that? So this guy who was with, maybe it was the Cox people. He comes back over to me and he says, I hear Moretti wants to sell his 935. I said, well, what does he want for it? He said, he wants 200 grand for it. I said, well, that's probably fairly reasonable. So we put together a consortium of guys that were willing to do that, and we buy a car, parked the BMW in the trailer, peeled off all the Momo stuff, started last, and made me, because I hadn't run, driven the car ever, and it didn't have a lot of downforce, so we put a splitter on the front and fooled around with a little bit best we could, and lined it our way and, and started the race. I've still got pictures of us aligning it on the gas station pad at the Duna and uh, and the sticker guys are putting stickers all over it. And it's, I've got a great picture of it coming out of the corkscrew. It's Ocean Motors BMW across the windshield on a Porsche 935. Uh, this is one of my most famous happenings. And uh, I weaved my way through the field. And I got up to where I could see Peter was leading, and I could see him. Anyway, I'm closing. I'm, I'm coming. And uh, I'm coming down the hill out of what then was, I'm going to say, turn seven, eight, nine, turn seven, get it up on the boost, and all of a sudden the engine goes and stumbles and has no horsepower, but it runs. So I call in the radio and I said, I don't know, something happened to the motor. So I'm coming down pit lane. You can tell me what happened because it lost all its boost. They opened the hood and said, Well, there's two problems. One, you've lost a turbocharger. And the guts of it are gone. And two, you started a forest fire up on hill outside of Turn Seven, and they're they've stopped the race and they're they're evacuating the racetrack. And I said, "Wait a minute! You're telling me that I almost got to the up toward the front front of a race in a." start at 9.35 from the back, and now I've lit Laguna Seca on fire. It was one of those drought years where the, everything was tinderwood, And the turbo wheel, the hot side turbo wheel, came out and cut a hole in the tailpipe and shot itself across the track into the grass and lit the grass on fire. <laughs> and and now they've shut down the race, and people are scrambling getting in their cars because people used to park on those hills and, and watch the races. And they're, they're scrambling and, this brush fire is racing across the, between turn seven and the winner's circle, which would be on the inside of the racetrack. It's heading to the inside of the racetrack. And the, and the fire trucks get up there and finally your foot and, and extinguish the fire, and everything starts over. But I can remember standing watching the end of the race, and I think Peter Drake won it. There, there was, the fire was still smoldering, and there was little no hot spots and everything, and I thought, you know, I did that. I, that was me. I did that. And that was the only thing I got out of that goddamn car. I hated that car. It never worked right again, and we tried to change the bodywork to get some downforce. And we just never did.
0: We're going to say farewell to our three-part celebration of reaching 1,000 episodes with one of my closest friends, refer to him as Uncle Harley, that being Harley Cluxton, one of the most fascinating men I have ever met, a racer an attorney a man who was part of the special forces fighting in vietnam a man who won the 24 hours of le Mans as an entrant 1975 with derek bell and jackie ix a man whose company gtc in arizona has bought and sold more of the world's most valuable race cars than anywhere else in the world. Person who took on the Mirage, Golf Mirage program, fairly famous 1982 Le Mans program with Mario and Michael Andretti that was disqualified on the grid. Here we are getting into a story. This 1984 saga, which feels like a mix between the TV show Law & Order and a Mission Impossible movie involves former Indianapolis Motor Speedway owner and Indy Racing League founder, Tony George, a two-time 24-hour of Le Mans winning Ford GT chassis, chassis number 1075, of which Tony felt very possessive over. We also hear a little bit about legendary Le Mans entrant John Wire, he of Ford GT and Porsche 917 fame, his man, team manager, John Horseman. And when we get towards the end of the episode, And therefore, the end of this many hours worth of storytelling, and you hear the number 14 spoken, just know that we're talking millions, which makes for a 6,900% increase on the original investment you're about to learn about, courtesy of Uncle Harley Cluxton.
10: The saga of Ken 75. I had brought John Wire over and he was um, firmly ensconced and uh, ensconced into uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and he had uh, immigrated. And so that meant that I had John Horseman, who was my engineer for GTC, Mirage Engineering, and then John Wire. So, John Wire would come over on a daily basis, which is not a far drive over to the office. It was to say a delight, honor to have him there on a daily basis. Your mentor, even after Le Mans '82, was uh, inspiring to say the least. I had said to John, I'd been watching and reading that Gulf Oil was being bought by Chevron because Gulf Oil had been taken down really deep with their slush fund payments to certain South American, Central American countries in order to get the oil uh, rights, drilling rights. Congress made sure that uh, Gulf Oil needed to be split up as did Texaco. So Gulf had been sold, and of course I knew Gulf Oil, you know, president of Gulf Oil, 1975, when I, at John Wires' behest, told me I should go and buy the Mirage team, totally convincing him that um, I didn't have the money, and he told me it didn't matter. Um, anyway, I, I did buy the, the team, and um, the rest is history there. But I said to John, you know, John, you know, it's the one car I would really love to have had. You know, of all the GT40s I've had— I mean, that's the car. That is the car. And now, just that, um, you know, Chevron's going to own it um, because they bought all the assets, it says right here in the Wall Street Journal. And John said, well, in his very um, deep wire, gruff voice, I wouldn't be so sure on that, Harley. I believe that Gulf Oil still owns that car. It is true that it's in the Indianapolis Museum, but it is leased to the Indianapolis Museum. And I said, so... You, you're telling me, John, that Tony George doesn't own car 1075? And he said, no, I believe he does not. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm fairly sure he doesn't. And I said, holy cow. Okay, well, look, John, can you do me a favor? Would you mind calling up Gulf Oil? And at that point, he said, you're the bloody attorney here. Why don't you call up Gulf Oil? <laughs> talk to the attorney's. You know, and then you guys work it out, okay? And I went, uh, you're right. Sorry, John. So I get the telephone number, general telephone number of uh, Gulf Oil. And of course, I'm patched through electronically to the, um, I guess you would say, the caretaker law firm. Uh, his name was Bill DeLeo, or his name is Bill DeLeo. He was the one that answered the phone, and he said, well, yes, um, we're the uh, caretaker um, of the remaining assets. I said, okay, so... So, but you are the attorney that would be representing Gulf Oil if I was to ask you about GT40 1075, and he said, "Well, you can ask," but Tony George, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, owns that car, and I said, "Well, funny you should say that. I thought that too," but I have John Wire here, as you know. Um, you know, Mr. Wire. And he said, oh, said, "Yes, of course, I know, Mr. Wire." I said, "Well, he's here in Scottsdale with me." And I'm looking at him, and of course, I'm, at this point, Marshall, I'm looking at John, and John sees fire in his eyes, and, I, and he's just going like this, and shaking his, his his index finger, going, "If you put me on the phone with this guy, you're dead meat." <laughs> and I said, anyway, uh, so Mr. Wire said that broached that subject with him. He he said um, that he was fairly sure, matter of fact, fairly, I would say, positive, actually, Gulf oil least. The car to the Indianapolis uh, Motor Museum. Bill at that point said, well, do you want to buy the car? And I said, yes, I want to buy the car. And he said, well, we've had hundreds of calls over the years of people wanting to buy 1075 and we've always turned them down. Um, because of Tony George owning, you know, the museum and owning the car. And so he said, how much are you willing to pay for the car? And so at that point, I had already figured out, and I knew what the prices of GT40s were. I also knew the prices of um, kind of like-kind 312 PBs and um, all the Ferraris, um, whether there were 312 PBs or
5: P3s or
10: P4s, because that's... I don't know what I knew. I'd also had J4 by that time, which was the Andretti, as far as Fords go, the Andretti um, McLaren Mark four Ford that they won Sebring in. And so I was pretty well versed on all of those cars. And none of them, other than the 312 PBs right from the factory, were what I was paying was like $40,000. So from the Ferrari factory, but I knew that, you know, on the open market, they were worth probably $200,000. So I said, $200,000. And he said, for the GT40 that we, well, we don't have it, but the one that's in the Indianapolis Motor Museum. And I said, yes. And he said, well, that's the highest anybody's ever offered. And this was again in 1984, Marshall. So, and it was, that was very, very expensive for the car or for any car at that point. So he said, well, Mr. Clarkson, we will go, we'll research to see if the car is, in fact, still ours. And if it is, then we will sell the car to you. Give me a couple of weeks to look into this. Weeks turned into maybe a month. He came back to me and said, well, Mr. Wire was right, correct. We do, in fact, own the car. Um, wow. And I said, oh, that's great news. That's great news. And um, John wasn't there that day in the morning when he called so i called john up at home and he said well did i tell you that though those were the facts i said yes you did john he said okay are you gonna buy it and i said well i hope to he said you said you were gonna buy it i said john i'm working on it they have to say yes we're gonna sell it to you all right well call me back so so i get on with bill bill couldn't have been nicer at this point he said okay so my next saying will be, I will write the Indianapolis Motor Museum and explain to them, we own the car and we would like the car back. And I said to him, I said, well, Bill, I want to wish you the best of luck on that one. (laughs) And he said, well, why? I said, well, Mr. George's reputation precedes him on something like this. But I'll let you find out yourself because I don't want to jinx this deal at all. I really know how much I've wanted this car. We've talked about that. And I don't want to piss off Mr. George because I'm sure I could very easily. He said, okay, well, leave it to me. I mean, it's just it's just a car, right? And I said, okay, fine. So the next week he calls and he says, this is really tough. First of all, I'm still at that point of convincing his lawyers – that we own the car. And I said, So how's that going? He said, Well provided them with copies of the paperwork, his signature. And I said, Well, that's great. And he said, But this is about the third law firm that he's had, and it's this is all news to them. And so I said, Oh, okay. Fine. So we're still in the evidence phase? And he said, Yeah, Harley, we're still in the evidence phase. I said, So, okay, fine. So I hung up the phone. And I start to pace and throw in, If he screws this thing up, that's it, George. So we go probably, I, I would guess, another month total. And he said, Okay, the firm has agreed that Golf owns the car, that we can do whatever we want with it. We will sell it to you. The only caveat is that Mr. George still does not believe the law firm. And I just cry. I said, Yep, you were right again. Yeah, his reputation really precedes him. He said, He refuses to believe that he signed what he signed, even though it was put in front of his face. So down to their law firm now, Harley. And so they're the ones that that have to deliver the car. I said, great, great. So gets to the point, finally, Bill comes back to me and says, okay, we have a deal. I can now in good faith sell you the car. So send me the $200,000, send us $200,000, which I did on February 6th. I'm looking at it at the check now 1985, and then after that came the usual boilerplate 27-page sales agreement between myself and Gulf Oil, and it says buyer agrees to pick up the car at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Foundation at Indianapolis, Indiana, on or, uh, or before. It's dated 1984, and I said, Bill, he said, no, I didn't sign that. You know, I just want you to have that. And I said, why did you want to have that? Why should I have that? And he said, well, just in case we have a problem with Mr. George. And I said, problem? He said, well, yeah, Harley. Apparently, Mr. George is going to figure out a time, a date and time. He's already figured out the times um, that you can pick up the car. He hasn't quite figured out the dates. And I would suggest to you that you come back to me and tell me the dates that you want to pick it up. I said, "Um, still kind of don't understand, but okay, fine, Bill. So what about the times? He said, well, there's the rub. Mr. George apparently likes to jog through the museum, especially in the winter. And so he has a special path that he goes through all of the cars that are at the museum. And I said, great. Okay. So when does he do this? And he says, well, oh, that's the other problem. He does it between anywhere between 530 AM Harley through by 11 PM. So any of that, that time, those times I gave you from 6 AM 06, to 2300 is off limits you can't pick up the car <laughs> and I said you're kidding and he said no I wish I was so I said he's agreed to it now but you have to pick it up between those hours because if he sees the car there's a quote the car being taken out put on a trailer anywhere in sight if he sees that happening he's going to call the whole deal off and I said can he do that and he said Well, he can probably do it, but then he's going to get an injunction. He's going to get, you know, his ass whipped in court and get fined, you know, which, of course, we would give you the money. I said, okay. well, that sounds pretty good. So the drama was that I said, okay, we're going to do this between February 11th, the aforementioned GT40 race car, February 11th, 85 to February 12th, 85. Well, as I just told you, that paid for the car on the 6th of February. Eighty-five. So I was sending out a transporter, our transporter, which was just a, a one-car open trailer to pick up the car. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, but it was a cool trailer, Marshall. It was a very cool trailer. I'm just saying, um,
0: 1075, this, you know, I know what it was worth in the early 80s, but, you know, this is racing royalty on an open-bed trailer.
10: Well, the issue was that what really happened was that we had to provide one of my guys drive out with this trailer
0: the the kind of cloak and dagger keeping an eye on your watch
10: yeah i already briefed the driver and luckily you know he had some combat experience i think in vietnam and so he said can i shoot him I said, don't do that don't do that no that's not a good not a good idea but he said but just be prepared because marshall when i say that tony george was hot he was hot i mean the words that came out of the mouth, his mouth that was um, quotes, you know, Bill quoted verbatim was nasty, Uh, We're nasty. I mean, it was like he was emotionally hurt over this. So, yeah, we got it out. He actually, the driver, uh, actually had, you know, one of our cleanup guys that wanted to go to Indianapolis. I don't know why, Um, but he was from Arizona. Never been to Indy before. So he was stationed at the entrance to the museum because when we got there, one of the guards at the museum had the car pushed out in the center aisle Steve Rosa was this uh, cleanup kid's name, um, and he was stationed at the entrance to where Tony George would come in while we had the trailer, you know, and the truck backed up to the only exit you can get the car out of from the museum. It wasn't obviously in the basement or anything like that. So and Steve was to yell and scream if he saw somebody, a hooded creature of any type, (laughs) jogging towards towards uh um, that so he looked like a you know a deer in the headlights the whole time apparently yeah but we got it out off the premises do know that he never saw the car And what we really did was we loaded the car on the trailer and then drove it over to i don't remember who it was but he had a shop a pretty big shop on, on gasoline alley and so we took the car over just to get it out in that time put it in his shop and then I had a real live truck. And I do know that he never acknowledged me forever after that, which is not a bad deal. You know, you'd think that the most difficult thing would be to work it out with golf oil. It, that was the easiest. That was the easiest. It was Tony George that threw the original ratchet, you know, in the works. I will quote this one thing from, to me, this letter, a letter of uh, 7 February 1985. Harley, although um, it's indeed been a struggle, I think we are finally nearing the end of the road um, on this project. While I will still be in contact with you on this matter, I would like you to know that it's been a real pleasure working with you. Good luck with the car. I know you will enjoy it, Bill.
0: So here's the part that I love can you explain how having to go through all this, paying the highest amount anyone had offered, and at that time again, two hundred thousand dollars was certainly big sum of money, even for a double Le Mans winner like 1075. When you decided to sell the delightful vehicle, it more than vindicated right. all the pain in the ass. When you decided to sell it, it did indeed. Uh, let's just say you got your money back.
10: I did. I didn't really want to sell it. The gentleman, I sold it to was a really you know a nice guy and just a a lover of the car. I mean, I you know as you know with ten seventy five the first time I saw the car was at Sebring in 1970 when I was racing there, and it was sitting right behind the pits, or, and it was lined up right next to the Golf Porsches, you know, like three Golf Porsches. And I thought, God, that's the car, that's the car. So, you know, I, I had known the car, I had followed the car. person that I sold it to really um, knew everything about John Wyre, knew John Wyre personally, wanted that car.
0: How many years did you hold on to it for? sold it
5: in
10: 1989, five years, four years, yes. It was good. It's still, if I had my brothers, I would sell no cars. But, I, you know, I had to sell a 312, one of my 312 PB. I only had one at that point. Uh, but the 312 PB that I really, really liked in order to get 1075. So it wasn't like I was ever rolling in money. But
0: I seem to recall you mentioned the number 14.
10: Yeah, a thousand lira.
0: No, it was, was it was, yeah, fourteen. I mean, I'm just saying. I've never been good at investing. Heartily, if I paid two hundred for something and I got fourteen with zeros and zeros behind it, I'm not saying I'd be happy that I sold the car. But I would at least look at the numbers behind the 14 and go, well, Mr. George, you made me work for it. But uh, I'm feeling okay with how this turned out.
10: Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, and the other thing is, you know, I traded some of his cars in on it, like um, 1015, which was um, the uh, Mark II Ford that you saw. And, you know, they came in. Second behind 1046, you saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari. And so that was the second place at Le Mans, and it won, like, three or four other races. Um, and so it's a pretty famous Ford GT. And then a birdcage Maserati, which is and on race car, which is really cool. Wow. Um, and there was something – oh, and a um, – usrc no it's an fia cobra a gurney
0: fia cobra have i ever told you you're ridiculous this minute on this day i don't think so i tell you that every other day every you, other
10: yeah you you do yeah i always get you always flip me the bird though why do you do that
0: well no hands too when i salute do it. yeah, yeah I'm one, not sure.
10: one finger salute yeah no but yeah that's <sighs> i just um i'm blessed you know parts of history that keeps me going 1075 beat Porsche in 1968 and in 69 it beat Porsche in three races including the 24 hours of Le Mans and those were 917s so that's pretty freaking cool
4: <laughs>
0: well if you've gotten this far that would mean you have absorbed somewhere between four and five hours of racing stories some very dear friends of mine that also means you are likely very dear friends of mine as well even if we haven't met so thanks once more to you for making my podcast possible thank you to my wife for allowing me to do this after hours uh, times when I should probably be doing other things, but she understands this actually keeps me sane and is my little happy place. Once more, Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, massive thank you to you. And if by chance this is your first time listening to this little audio experiment of mine, you might visit Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We do have all 1000 plus episodes waiting for you and every conceivable manner of subscribing to this weekly unpolished turd worth of content that I churn out. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt (sighs) 2000.
5: Here we come.